He was by the roadside that day doing the only thing that he knew he could do to survive, and that was begging. People like him who were blind were not viewed sympathetically in those days. In fact, it was just the opposite. There was a general bigotry geared toward those with disabilities, fueled by the belief that the impaired had likely done something wrong to deserve the condition they were in, or they were the inheritor of some parental sin. You remember the question that Jesus' disciples posed to him earlier in their time together. We read about it in the Gospel of John, where they were walking by a man who had been sightless from birth. And they treated him not like a person, but like a theological conundrum. Lord, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus had made the turn to Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets, the city that's going to kill him too. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is marching toward the day of his sacrifice. The crowd accompanying Jesus has grown. Some believe that they were on their way to take part in the inauguration of a new king, a political deliverer who would take them out from under the oppression of Rome and restore the majesty and the power of Israel. Others, very likely, were tagging along, hoping to see something amazing at the hands of this Jesus fellow of whom it was reported he did amazing things. And we can guess a certain part of the crowd had no idea why they were tagging along because there's always that element in every crowd. The size of the entourage is unknown, but it was big enough to make a commotion such that a blind man could tell that something was happening, something different from the day-to-day. The road he sat on day-to-day wasn't usually this busy. When he asked what was happening, someone in the crowd answered him and said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And to that, this blind beggar immediately raised his voice and cried, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. The people in front, the ones who were able to see, the ones who were able to move at will, the ones who would be closest to the Lord as he passed by, admonished the blind beggar. They rebuked him sharply and told him to keep his peace. It's bad enough that blind beggars have to be seen, but they should not be heard. But he ignored their rebuke. And he cried all the more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Curiously, the people in the crowd, referred to Jesus in terms of where he was from, 
the blind man refers to him in terms of who he is from. He somehow knows that Jesus is more than just a product of a place called Nazareth. And he calls to him by a messianic designation, son of David. Maybe this truth about Jesus, that he was the Messiah, had been supernaturally revealed to him. You remember that happened for Peter. When Jesus said to Peter, who do you say I am? I'm interested in what the crowd think, but who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus responded to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So there is a supernatural revelation of who Jesus is. It's happened before. Maybe it happened to this man. Maybe that's how he knew that Jesus was the Son of David. Although I bet, sitting beside that road as he did day after day after day, he had occasion to overhear stories and conversations of the passers-by exclaiming what Jesus had done, exalting the name and the power of this Jesus. Enough, I believe, so that he could see something even a blind man could see. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Savior. Son of David, have mercy on me. He'd have to cry loudly in order to gain the attention of Jesus, in order to be heard among the throng or above it. And apparently he did, for Luke tells us, and Jesus stopped. English evangelist and author F.B. Meyer would have us understand the significance of this simple act of stopping. He writes, our Lord's mind must have been filled with the anticipation of the momentous issues to be decided. But he was sufficiently at leisure from himself to hear the cry of distress from this blind beggar. How absolutely he placed himself at the disposal of those who needed his help. Human need and sorrow always commanded him. Each comer was able to draw all the grace he required according to the measure of the bucket of his faith, when let down into that infinite well. Friend, are you sufficiently at leisure from yourself to hear the cries of distress around you? And will you, like Jesus, put yourself at the disposal of those who need your help? Jesus stopped. He heard the cry, but he didn't know exactly where it was coming from. So he commands the man to be brought to him. And all motion ceases, and stepping forward from the crowd, there is a blind beggar. What's he going to do with this shoddy panhandler who has broken protocol and indiscriminately and unceremoniously interrupted Christ's parade? Well, he's going to do for him what he does for everyone who seeks his face. He's going to have a conversation. He's going to ask an important question, a life-changing question. What do you want me to do for you? Well, it might have been obvious, right? 
You heard Tim read the scripture. You've read this scripture. Isn't it obvious what this fellow would want? Jesus does not presume. He wants you to know what you want. So you can ask. And I think here he's showing respect to a man who was hardly ever respected in his life. To say you knew you do have a say in things. You do have a voice. Use it. And tell me what you want. He puts the ball in this man's court. He's not imposing himself in any way. The man had cried out to him, after all, Son of David, have mercy on me. So now Jesus is saying, you've asked for mercy. Tell me what this mercy you're asking for looks like. What do you want? And the blind man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, okay. That's probably how the message paraphrase would put it. Sure. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. You see, when a miracle happens, the scene rightly reverberates with the truth of the sovereignty of God, the power of God over everything, the goodness of God toward his people, and praise and worship are the only proper response to our miracle-working God. A blind beggar received his sight, and all the people there rejoiced. And that is how Luke brings his story to an end and leaves us to wonder, at least as we should wonder of all the Bible stories, why did he tell the story in the first place? Why is it in here? Why did the Holy Spirit decide this needs to be in the Holy Scripture? Why is this part of Luke's Gospel? What's it about? What implications might it have for modern day hearers like you and I? Well, to begin, Luke probably recounts this miracle as one more corroborated proof alleviating any doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah would be a Jewish king from the line of David sent to save God's people. Such a miracle as we have just read about and revisited is not coincidentally in keeping with the anticipated ministry of the Messiah. And the proclamation that Jesus himself made about himself, which you read in Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. This is Jesus. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim. Proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant 
And he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus has come as the Messiah, teaching and preaching the kingdom of God, healing the sick, casting out demons, opening the eyes of the blind, challenging the onerous, works-driven religion that much of Judaism had become. Jesus did all that the prophet Isaiah said he would do. And so if we go back to the start of Luke and why the Gospel of Luke was written to give certainty to the things that had been taught, told about Jesus, you find that in Luke chapter 1. This story of the blind beggar is in its simplest form just more confirmation. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah, the Savior, the healer, the one who gives sight to the blind. This story is one more reason to believe and respond to Jesus as the Lord. Which is exactly what the blind beggar did, right? Though many more, to their own demise and their eternal loss, did not respond to Jesus this way. Luke points this out throughout the 18th chapter of his gospel. It is a chapter of contrasts. It starts with the story of a worldly, and by worldly standards, a powerful judge, and a weak, oppressed widow, who nonetheless, through persistence, prevails and receives justice. It moves to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the humble and penitent sinner asks for mercy, and the haughty religious leader recites his goodness and asks for nothing, and both of them get what they ask for. The tax collector goes to his house justified. The Pharisee leaves the temple unchanged. And then there is the incident of people bringing little children to Jesus. You remember that? And his disciples forbade them. Don't bother the master. Don't bring these little ones. And what does Jesus say? Hey, let the little children come to me. Don't forbid them. Don't stop them. Don't rebuke these parents bringing their kids like those people in that crowd. Rebuke that blind beggar for asking for Jesus' attention. Don't think that you should be limiting anyone's access to Jesus. In fact, unless you become like one of these little children, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of God. The chapter has a story of a rich young ruler who'd followed the laws of religion, wanted to know what else he had to do, what more he had to do to be saved, and probably was looking for Jesus to say, nothing, brother, you've done it all. Congratulations on the great, wonderful life that you've lived. I'll see you in heaven soon. Well, he, he approached Jesus. There must have been something gnawing at him, though, that it was, he wasn't quite satisfied with his eternal destiny. What must he do to be saved? And this is an odd instance where Jesus says, um, 
sell everything you have. You mean you've done great. You followed the rules. That's wonderful. Now, just one thing you lack. Sell everything you have and give all that to the poor and then come follow me. And what does the Bible say about this? That he went away sad because he was a man of great wealth. And that's because he put his trust and his, his security in his wealth. His wealth was his reputation. His wealth was his power. His wealth was his reason for being, and his wealth was what kept him from Jesus, and Jesus knew that, and that's why, because people read that and they're like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I want to be a Christian, I've got to be broke. That's not the point. But if you want to be a Christian, you absolutely have to get rid of anything that gets in between you and Jesus. And that was what was going on with this man. His wealth was too much. He went away sad. And then the chapter ends with a story that we've looked at today, a chapter of unlikely beneficiaries of God's grace. A chapter that challenges society's sense of who or what has value, who should and should not have access to Jesus. Who should or should not be blessed. A chapter that ends with the salvation of a shoddy beggar who cried out in total dependence on Jesus for his healing, for his recovery, for his salvation. This blind beggar shows us how Israel should have responded to her Savior. But they didn't. Swing and a miss. They missed it completely. They were blind and they stubbornly decided that they would stay that way. They let their opportunity for healing, for recovery, for salvation pass them by. Before we get critical of the Israelites who let Jesus wander on by, and did not avail themselves of what Jesus has to offer. Let's take a step back and understand this is about Israel, but it's not only about Israel. And it's not entirely historical. There is a lesson in Jesus' journey to Jerusalem for all of us, for the here and for the now. One way or another, whether actively or passively, Everyone chooses how they will respond to the spiritual opportune moments when Jesus passes by. Last week, in our scripture from Luke 9, we saw how one of those opportune moments of Jesus passing by was squandered. He had just made the turn to Jerusalem. He wanted to travel through the region of Samaria but they wouldn't receive him. They would not let him in. What might have happened, do you think, in that little village if Jesus had been allowed to enter? If he had spent the night as he wanted to? If he had shared a meal? If the people had an opportunity to hear him? If he had sat and fellowshiped with them? What would have happened if they had invited Jesus in? Well, we'll never know. We will never know. But we do know this, 
that when he tarried with a Samaritan woman at the well, John chapter 4, when he met with her while his disciples were gone to the city to get some food, when he struck up a conversation with this woman, cutting through the racial and religious differences that usually kept Jews and Samaritans apart, she was able to see that he was the Messiah. She was able to see that he had living water. She believed in him, and she was saved, and she went out from that place telling everybody about him. I wonder, friend, do you have any biases or preconceived notions or erroneous perceptions of Jesus or even of yourself that keep you from calling out or otherwise responding to him as he passes by? Because remember, that's how that sort of thing started in John chapter 4. And that woman asked again, how is it that you, being a Jew, should have any dealings with me, a Samaritan? Do you have some of those erroneous perceptions about how Jesus is or how things ought to be that keep you from wanting to call out to him or have a conversation? If you will truly entertain Jesus you will find him every bit of what he claims to be. If you will honestly entertain Jesus, you will find him to be every bit of what he claims to be. The Son of God. God himself. The Savior of lost people everywhere. Doesn't matter what your social status is, doesn't matter what your rank is, doesn't matter what your race is, doesn't matter what your past religious history is, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. If you will entertain him, you will find him to be the savior of lost people everywhere. And if you will humble yourself, and if you will cry out to him for mercy, you will receive it. But as it were, back there in Luke chapter 9, the Samaritans said no. And Luke tells us they went to another village. They, Jesus and his disciples, went to another village. Sometimes these little sentences in a scripture, we can just read over them without stopping for a second to think, well, what does that even mean? Jesus says, if you don't want me, I'm just going to move on and encounter someone who does. <laughs> just make you want to grieve for those silly Samaritans. Opportunity lost. And like every opportunity lost, no guarantee of it coming round again. That's why the scripture says with urgency, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Seek him while he may be found. 
That's why James is so very clear in his little letter that we should not presume on tomorrow. He says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist, a vapor, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is why the psalmist pleads today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So we find that in Psalm 95, but you know what? You move over to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, and the writer says it three more times. Today, if you would hear his voice, if God is calling, if Jesus is passing by, do not harden your hearts. You may choose to, like Israel like the Samaritan village, you may choose to let Jesus pass. And He will. You see, Jesus loves you, but He's not going to force His way into your life. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears My voice, and opens the door. I will come unto him and sup with him, and he with me. He will knock at that door, but he will not kick it in. He is not going to audition for a part in the play that is your life. And nor should he have to, because he is the reason that you have life. And he is not going to pass some test that you may have set up for him in order to believe him, because he passed that test already on the cross when he gave his life for your sin, so that you, if you call on him, could have eternal life. He's not going to beg you to accept Him for who He is and what He's done. Rather, what has to happen for salvation to occur is we must call to Him. We must come to Him on His terms. And so, tell Him with the desperation of a hopeless blind man, son of David, have mercy on me. We are the beggars. We are the beggars, friend. We are the ones who must come to the conclusion of our great need for Jesus. And then, and only then, will we be in a position to receive all that He has to give. So, what do you want? What do you want from Him? Envision Jesus passing by right now. 
What would you ask him for? What do you want? In the book of James, we are told, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, praise the Lord, we have Luke 18 and a blind beggar who shows us the power of asking. Some people I know, Christians, are uncomfortable at this point. They're like, well, I, you know, Pastor, I don't, I don't really ever ask for anything for myself. I always just ask for other people. Well, brother, sister, let me correct your theology. Again, the book of James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. And we read in the book of Luke, how is it, if you, being evil, know how to give your children good gifts, how much more, how much more does your good heavenly Father want to give to you? And Jesus told us a few things relative to this. Something like, ask and what happens? Ah, seek and what happens? And knock, what happens? The door will be opened unto you. If we weren't to ask for ourselves, why would the Apostle Paul even pray that our, the eyes of our hearts would be opened to the wellspring of power and riches and beauty that is ours in Christ Jesus? We, there is no problem asking anything for yourself because God loves you and it is His good pleasure to give you what is good and right. So ask. Correct your theology and understand that as a child of God, adopted into His family, all that is His is yours. Ask. James says you don't have because you don't ask. And of course some of us are saying, well, I've asked for some things and I haven't gotten them. Does that mean that I auto automatically I'm going to get everything that I ask for? Of course not. We understand that scripturally, right? Listen, these, these sons of thunder who wanted to wipe out the Samaritans a while ago and who are squabbling over who's the, going to be the greatest in the kingdom in the good seats had asked Jesus a question about that. You can read about it in Mark 10. They want to sit on the right and the left hand, and, and, and they tell him that in response to a question Jesus posed to them. You know what that question was? What do you want me to do for you? So Jesus asks the same question that he asked the blind beggar, what do you want me to do for you? And they give him an answer, but it's not a great answer. And he told them, that's not mine to decide. In other words, no. You're not going to get everything you ask for because sometimes you ask with the wrong motives. And that's exactly what the book of James tells us. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you might spend it on your passions. So that, that is the Lord let me win megabucks prayer, right? You said I could ask, Pastor. Are we thankful for a patient, forbearing God? Amen. Yes, because we do ask for some silly things. The Scripture teaches that if we ask with the right motives, if we ask in tune with the will of God, we will receive. 
and we make our petitions known as we are taught by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's not uh, an off-ramp for faithlessness. It's the context in which we live. I'm going to ask you, God, for what I want. You're either going to give it to me and I'm going to rejoice in it, or you're going to withhold it from me. And if you do, I understand that you have a plan that is better than mine and that I will gladly, as your servant, who's here for one purpose to bring you glory, do my best to walk in the plan that you have made for me. But along the way, I'm going to stop once in a while and I'm going to ask. Because the scripture teaches that if we ask with the right motives, in accordance with the will of God, we will receive. And I believe that we are often lacking because we do not ask. The blind man wanted to see, knew what he wanted, and he asked. And Jesus wanted him to see. So what do you want? What do you want Jesus to do for you? I've asked you that three or four times. You must have an answer. I'm not asking you for it. But what I would like to do it's for us to spend some time praying about it. If you can identify what you want, let's spend some time praying about it. And beyond that, just to scare you a little more, couldn't this be a conversation for dinner time? Wouldn't it be something sweet to look across that table to your loved one and say, What do you want Jesus to do for you? Let me tell you what I want Jesus to do for me. And let's pray about those things. And let's get that right out in the open. And let's talk about it. Bow your heads, would you? It could be you're here today and you need to know from Jesus that your sins are forgiven. Your prayer might be, I want to have eternal life. You could be here today afflicted, and your prayer is, I want to be healed, Jesus. You could be here today in bondage, in captivity to addiction. Son of David, I want to be free. Finally, forever free. You could be here today fearing that you have wasted your life and missed it like Israel for never having responded to Jesus, but now is your time to decide for whatever time is left that you can live for the glory of God. You may be here today having followed yourself through your life. 
And if Jesus were to ask, what do you want me to do for you? You would say, I want to follow you. Be my Lord. Be my master. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your goodness to us and for your willingness to give us so much more than we deserve. Lord, for the liberality with which you treat us, for the abundant love that you have for us, for the way that you share your bounty with us, for your blessings, and for your willingness to give to us. When we in faith turn to you and ask, and God, there's been a lot of asking going on here in these last couple of minutes. We're not done asking. Help us to be a people humble enough to ask all the time. Because your resources are not limited. You abundantly pardon. You abundantly give. We praise you and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.